So again, welcome. This is week four of a Bible study about something kind of amazing, and that is that God's word is actually God communicating with us, and we've been like allowing ourselves to be amazed by the concept that God has written this book for us. This is God communicating with us, and that is such a big thing that we wanna take it seriously and we wanna dig in and break it down and tear it apart. Paul called it rightly dividing the word. Break this thing down so that we can really, really try to really, really understand what God is really, really saying to us through his word. This book is incredible. And what we've noticed is that the Bible is doing two things simultaneously. At the same time, it's doing two completely different things. And one thing is it's given us this amazing instruction. As we read through the Bible, it's giving us instruction about who we are and why we're here and how we should live. And then at the same time that that's going on, every piece of the Bible, every chapter, every verse, every story, every sermon, every poem, everything in the Bible is working together to tell one amazing, eternal, unified story. And that story leads us to Jesus. And it's kind of like that video. It's kind of like a family photo album. When you go through your family photo album, you can pull out any one picture. Any one picture on its own is amazing, right? It evokes emotion in you. It reminds you of an experience you had. Maybe it's a lesson that you learned or something. Every photo in there matters and has great value on its own. But really the greatest value of any of those experiences is when you put them back into the photo album and you see, wow, they're just part of this amazing story of our family. And so that's kind of what we're doing today. We're gonna to take a snapshot out of the Bible and we're gonna, we're gonna examine it in, in three parts, okay? Part one is we're gonna examine it and see what we can learn about it. We're gonna take this thing out and look at it. And then while we have it out, we're gonna do part two, which is we're gonna see what we can learn from it. How does it pertain to us? How does this story that's thousands of years old really matter in our lives? And then part three is we're gonna put it back into the storyline of the Bible and we're gonna see how it leads to Jesus. So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the early stories, right? Genesis one and two and how God created this perfect place so that man and God could be together and God was providing everything that man needed in this place so that he could thrive and so that he could flourish and, and man was, you know, he was loved and he was safe and he had food and water and beauty and company. He had work to do and listen, the best of all, in that place, in the Garden of Eden, God was able to actually, a man was able to actually experience the presence of God. And then God makes man like the king of everything. He's the royal priest. He's gonna be over everything in the whole world and, and, and reflect God's image to the world. And so Adam and Eve are, you know, living their best life, man. They're in the garden and they're working and they're playing and they're experiencing God and they're eating fruit from these beautiful trees and they're floating these amazing rivers and they're trying to figure out how to be fruitful and multiply and it's just all happening in this amazing, perfect place that God had created. But now today, the plot thickens. And so this is kind of a long read. Follow me if you've got your Bibles or something, and otherwise, um, I'll read this to you. This is Genesis 3.1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, 
Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we can eat trees from the fruit in the garden, uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. Oh, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and then you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame in their nakedness. So they sewed figs together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And the Lord asked, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, it was a woman who gave me the fruit and I ate it. <laughs> and so it began. And then, and then the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? Oh, the serpent, serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It'll grow thorns and thistles for you though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So, pretty rough day uh, in the garden, you know. <laughs> you always think about this like, it started out great. You know, that morning everything was fine. Everything was great between Adam and Eve. Everything was great between God and humanity. And then this snake came along and, and tempted them and they caved, they, they sinned. They did what God said was not good for them. They did what God said brought death. And then God lays out the consequences, right? So now this is what's gonna happen. And for women, it was painful childbirth and it was this weird relationship that women would always have with men where men would always be in control. And you know, for most of history, a lot of men have used that control to really oppress women. And then for men, there would be this endless struggle to, to provide, even, even for food. And so man was gonna have to work hard and sweat and the thorns and the weeds just to eat. But listen, way worse, way worse than any of that was that now they would experience death. They were, they were kicked out of the garden. They were separated from the tree of life. And that, that, that means two things. Number one, it means literal death, right? Their bodies were not gonna last forever after all. And number two, way worse, was spiritual death, which is this separation from God. So this, this choice they made had some real 
serious, horrible consequences. And there were consequences for the serpent, too. And I don't know if um, snakes could walk before that, but after that, one of the consequences was that they would have to slither around in the dirt and that there would be um, hostility between mankind and snakes forever. So let me just ask you real quick, did that work? How many of you just love cuddling with snakes? I think that, right, there you go, that, there it is. And then there's this weird part about how someday a man, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the snake and the snake would bite the man's foot. So, I mean, let's call it what it is, right? This is a weird story. And there's a lot of, it's intentional. There's a lot of like gaps in it. There's a lot of stuff that it doesn't fill in for us. It's supposed to make us talk and think and pray and compare it to other scriptures and dig in and try to understand that those gaps are in there on purpose. And there's a lot, man. At this point, we don't know who the snake is. We don't know why he can talk. We don't know why they listened to him. We don't know why he wanted to ruin everything, but apparently he did want to ruin everything, and he was really good at it. It said he was the shrewdest of all the animals, which I don't know how shrewd you have to be to be more shrewd than other animals, but he was, he was slick, man. He, he wanted to ruin everything, and he had this really good strategy to tempt them, to, to trick them. Apparently he understood that they had free will and he was gonna use that against them. And his strategy was he wanted to make God look bad and then he wanted to make sin look good. That was, like, that was his strategy, that was his plan. And so first he tried to make God look bad. So he's twisting God's word. He says to Eve, oh, so God says you can't eat any of the fruit? That's horrible, why would he do that to you? Look at all this beautiful fruit and he's not letting you have any of it. He, why is he so mean to you? And Eve doesn't buy that, right? And she goes, no, he said we can eat any fruit. We just can't eat that one tree. And then he like changes, oh well, I'll tell you this, God's, God's just mean and he's just selfish and he just doesn't want you to have what he has and so you can't trust him. So what's he doing? He's trying to make God look bad. And then he tries to make sin look good. And this is like in two parts, right? Once he, once, he, once he points it out for her, it said Eve could see that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was beautiful. She could see, he, he, he's like a salesman, right? Check it out. He, she could suddenly see that this one tree, this one forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was beautiful. And so let me ask you this. How many of you name your trees? Like zero, right? So if this, if this tree has a name, I think, we're spo- I think that's, we're supposed to pay attention to that name, right? What, is, what, is this, what does it mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what it means is when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you're deciding what's good. And you're deciding what's evil. And that's really what the snake was playing up. That's really like his big sales pitch. It's like, well, why does God get to tell you what's right? Why does God get to decide what's wrong? He wasn't just tasting their taste or tempting their taste buds. He's, he's tempting their pride. It's like, you guys are smart, right? You're, you're the king of everything. Why don't you make your own decisions? You can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. And don't you, I mean, don't you deserve that? Right? What? I mean, why would you, you're made in the image of God. But look, if you could decide what's good and what's bad, 
you wouldn't just be in God's image. You could actually be God. He, he polished it up really nice for her, starting with the tree, just this, this idea of being able to choose for yourself what is right and what is wrong, and then also the fruit of that tree, and he polished that up too, and in fact it says, after his pitch, she could see that the tree looked beautiful, the idea of the knowledge of good and evil, I'll decide what's right and wrong, she could see that that looked beautiful, and also the fruit of that looked delicious, and she wanted it, so the snake was, he was good, man, he, he made it so appealing, Again, starting off by saying, you know, God's not that great. He's kind of holding you back. Don't you think you should get to decide what's right and wrong? And then just look at that apple. I mean, how crunchy, you know, how sweet, how delicious that must be. And so with that technique, with that thing of making God look bad and making sin look good, he deceived Adam and Eve, and they caved. They, they gave in to temptation, and they chose, you know, their way over God's way, and they wanted to decide what was good and bad. They wanted to decide what was right and wrong, and they weren't satisfied with God's provision and God's protection and God's purpose and God's presence. They wanted God's position, right? They, they didn't just want to be with God. They wanted to be God, and the results were disastrous. Right? And not just for them. I mean, bad stuff happened to them. But Romans 5, we looked at this last week, says that through one man's sin, this sin, sin and death and everything awful came into the world. So, so death, both physical death and then also the worst thing, the separation from God for all of humanity came in to the world and into our lives as a result, a result of this snake and listening to the snake and giving in to his temptation. So, Part two, what can we learn from this story? What, what does this story have to do with us, right? Does this really old story even matter in our current stories? And I'm gonna tell you that it does because the characters in this story are representations of the characters in our story. So I'm gonna say that again, don't get all mad yet. Save it. The characters in this story represent the characters in our story. And please don't hear me wrong, save your email. I'm not saying that this is all allegory and metaphor. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Adam and Eve were actual, factual, historical, literal, individual people. I'm pretty sure Adam and Eve were actual individual people, but I'm very sure that they're representations of something more than that. I know they were Adam and Eve, but they were also Adam and Hava. They were also human life. They're us. This, it's like the TV show, right? This is us. As you read this, this, this is us. It, yeah, they were people. This is us. And it's the same with the snake. I mean, was this an actual, literal, talking snake? I'm pretty sure it was. But I'm really sure that it also represents someone else. 
And it doesn't tell us in this story, but if we read through the rest of the story, we're gonna find out that this serpent represents Satan, and he is just as hard at work now, right? Just as hard at work today in our lives in the New Testament as he was thousands of years ago. In fact, Jesus said in John 10.10 that Satan's purpose is to kill and steal and destroy. That's his purpose. That's why he gets out of bed. That's why he exists is to kill and steal and destroy. And he does it lots of ways, right? We've seen him. His circumstances and doubt and disease and hate and fear and shame. And one of his best tools, right? One of his best weapons as he's trying to kill, steal and destroy. One of the best weapons he has is temptations. And tempt- especially tempting us with, with pride, right? That's, and you know, it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? This has been working forever. And so he hasn't really, he hasn't really changed his technique that much. Um, even now, what, what does he do? He, he tries to make God look bad, and he tries to make sin look good. He, he loves to whisper to us. I mean, he loves, just like, I don't know why a snake, right? But maybe it has something to do with that, that sound, that hissing, whispering sound. It's like he just loves to say to us, you know, God doesn't want you to have any fun, right? He's, and he'll even like make, oh, you can't have any of the fruit? Like he'll say, oh, God says you can't ever have sex? That's horrible, right? God says you can never drink wine? That's terrible. God says you can never have fun. You can never hang out with your friends. You can never laugh again. That is horrible. Why would he do that? He is so mean to you. And then when you don't buy that, because we know God didn't really say those things, then he just, just like in the garden, he goes back to, well, you know, God's, he's just mean. He just, he's, you can't trust him. He just doesn't want you to know. Well, he's mean and he's selfish. This is what he does. This is, this is the technique. It's been working for thousands of years. He tries to make God look bad. And then he tries to make sin look good. So remember the tree, right, in the garden. He, it, it, looked, it looked beautiful to her. And it's, a, it's the same strategy now, right? He starts with this idea, the tree, this idea that you could choose, right? Why does God get to decide what's right and wrong? You, you could choose what's right and wrong. You, you, you don't have to trust God's definition of right and wrong. You could redefine it for yourself. And this is really like, what's he saying? Disregarding what God calls good and evil and deciding for yourself what's good and evil and to deceived people. That's beautiful, right? To people that are really deceived by Satan, this idea that I don't need God to tell me what's right, no, I'll decide what's right. That is a beautiful, very seducing, right? Very seductive idea. Um, And I'll give you you an example, and don't get all happy about this example, okay? Because there's more examples coming. Um, It might be easy for us to see this one, so we'll start with this. And it's people in the transgender movement because what, what they've decided that God's idea, right, this, this, this God's idea of a, a binary male and female, I've just, that's not good. That's not good. So I'll decide what's good. I'll decide what gender means. I'll decide what sexuality means. So don't, don't say amen because you might be next. That's an easy one to see, right? I'll just redefine what's good and evil. I'll decide what's right and wrong. Um, most people who look at pornography, 
We're doing the exact same thing, right? They're saying it's not wrong. They're not saying this is wrong, this is sinful, this is evil, this is separating me from God, but I don't care, I'm gonna do it anyway. You know what they're saying? It's not really wrong. It's not really, I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. Who am I hurting? I'm not hurting anybody, which is obviously a lie, right? Because pornography is what drives prostitution and prostitution is what drives human trafficking. So yeah, don't tell, tell those kids that nobody's being hurt by this, right? Marriages are being destroyed by this. It's a sin. Jesus called it the sin of sexual immorality to look at a woman like that. And so it's separating people from God. So it's absolutely hurting people. But most people that look at porn have decided for themselves that it's okay. What are, they, what are they doing when they make that decision? They're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They're saying, you know what? I'll decide what's good. I'll decide what's, what's evil. Most people who cheat on their spouses, how many of you are cheating on your spouse right now, real quick? <laughs> you know, you run it up there, sometimes somebody gets all swept up. <laughs> Dang it. Why did I do that? Most people who cheat on their spouse don't say, this is evil, this is wrong, I'm breaking a covenant, I'm dishonoring God, I'm dishonoring family, I'm dishonoring marriage, I'm dishonoring myself, I'm dishonoring my parents, but I'm gonna do it anyway. They don't say that. What do they say? They say, you know what? It's not even really wrong. It's not even my fault. You know, if my husband would treat me better, if my husband would give me the attention that I deserve, then I wouldn't have to do that. So really, it's not my fault at all. So I'm, not even, I'm not even doing anything wrong. What's she doing? She's doing the same thing Adam and Eve did, right? She's redefining. Right? She's going to decide what's right and what's wrong. Jesus said, if you hate someone or call someone ugly names, you're guilty of murder. You agree that Jesus said that? Do we need to go there or just nod and I won't go dig it up? Yep, we all agree that Jesus said that. And yet, people say and post the most hateful things ever. And they never bat an eye. How? How? <laughs> people that call themselves Jesus followers, how do they do that? And it's because they, they justify it. They don't say it's wrong, it's hateful, it's evil, it's sin, it's murder, but I'm gonna do it anyway. No, they, they say, you know what? Here's the thing, my enemies are so wrong, right? They are so stupid that I have to, it's it's like my job to straighten them out and so I'm gonna gonna correct them and I have to do it really, really good and so it's not really wrong for me to insult them. It's not really wrong for me to mock them. It's not really wrong for me to call names or use a hateful tone. What are they doing, right? They're deciding what's right and what's wrong? They've, they're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good. And they're making the same choice that Adam and Eve made. The snake is talking to them, just like he talked to Eve. And he's saying, who is God to tell you what's right and wrong? You know what you want. You know what's best. You have this amazing understanding of how everything works. Just decide for yourself what's right and wrong. And just like in the garden, he doesn't stop with that. Right? He doesn't just show you this this beautiful tree, this, this tempting idea that you can decide what's good and evil. That's like part one, right? He'll show you the tree, he'll show you the idea, you can decide what's right and wrong, but then just like in the garden, he also polishes up the fruit itself, right? The fruit of that tree. And he makes it, 
just seems so good. You know, he, he makes it seem, oh, look at that apple. Oh, man. That's, you know, who thinks for sure it was an apple? Pear? <laughs> quince? I heard it was, it's a quince. I don't even know what a quince is. But whatever it was, I promise it wasn't like an old bruised one, right? If it was a banana, it wasn't that really gross brown banana, right? It looked good, man. It looked shiny. It looked delicious, right? He, not just the idea that you can decide what's right or wrong, but the actual fruit of that decision, he makes it look so good. Look at that other man's wife, right? Doesn't she look good? Doesn't she look good? Think, right, just think for a second, he says, how good it would feel right now to get high. Wouldn't that be just awesome, right? He doesn't talk about what happens the next day. He doesn't talk about what happens the next week. He doesn't talk about what happens to your relationship. He just makes God look bad. He gets in your head about this idea that you get to decide what's right and wrong, and then he makes what's wrong look right. He makes sin look good. You know, if you stole that idea, one idea, it's not even really probably stealing, you get a raise, you buy yourself that new Louis Vuitton purse, how good would that look on you, right? Tell one lie about your competitor. Just one, tell one lie, a little white lie. Tell one little lie about your competitor. You make this sale, you get that promotion, you get a new car, right? Can't you smell the leather? Right, it's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna have this amazing car, right? Wouldn't it be sweet to cut down your enemies on social media? I mean, wouldn't that feel good, right? That would be to shut their stupid mouths once and for all. Let everybody see how dumb they really are and how smart you really are. Wouldn't that be awesome? Think how good it's gonna feel when those likes start popping up. Smiles, thumbs up, happy face, right? That's gonna be Awesome. See what he does? He, he makes God look bad. He doesn't lie. He, doesn't, he can't tell you what's right and wrong. You should have the knowledge of good and evil. You should decide what's right and wrong. And then he polishes up that thing. He makes, you know what? If you just click on that link to those videos, you'll feel so good. It's going to be so amazing. And remember, you already decided it's not even wrong. He's just, he's good, man. He's good. He is such a liar. You can, you can be a really great salesman if you're willing to lie, right? I have to fight temptation right now. I'm saying, hang on. Jesus, help me not talk about used car dealers right now. <laughs> if you're willing to lie, it's easy to make a sale, right? And that's why Jesus said in John 8, 44, that's just who Jesus, that's who Satan is, right? The devil hates the truth. He hates the truth. And when, when he lies, it's not hard for him. That's who he is. He's, he's the father of lies. That, that's who he is. And I guess because he's been practicing it for so long, he's just really good at it. Right? He's a, like a slippery snake. He's just so good at being bad. I think one of the great mistakes we make as Christians is underestimating the enemy. He's, he's good, man. You know, he doesn't say you should do what's wrong. He says you should decide what's right. right? He, doesn't, he doesn't tell us how bad the consequences are. He just tells us how sweet the apple is. 
He's, he's been deceiving humanity since the garden, man. And, and look around and you see what happens, right? Look around and you'll see what happens when we decide what's good. And look at the world around us. There's sin and violence and hate and oppression and division and death, right? That's the world now. That's what happens. That's the world now. It's like the world is in his control. In fact, well, the New Testament says that he's the prince of this world, right? He is, he's the, the ruler of this world. And I gotta say, honestly, when I read this little story, He's, he's just so good. It just, it seems kind of hopeless. You know, it's like, how's man ever gonna get back into the garden, right? How, how are we ever gonna get back to this place with God? Because no one can overcome his lies. No one can stand up to his temptation. So it's a, it's a really sad story. In the very beginning of the book, but the, the end of that little story kind of gives us hope in the big story. And that's, that's part three, right? So this is now where we see how this little story fits into the great big overall story and how it points to Jesus. And so here's the, here's the, the hopeful part. Um, I read it earlier. It's after the temptation and God's like confronted them and sin and everything's happening and God's pronouncing a curse on the serpent. Look what he says. This is Genesis 3.15. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is like this weird kind of vague promise that someday an offspring of Eve, a human, will step up and the snake will bite him on the foot. The snake will try to destroy him, but this man will finally, ultimately, totally crush the head of the serpent so that he can no longer tempt and he can no longer deceive and he can no longer kill and steal and destroy and this man will be the hero of the big story. Can you guess who the snake crusher hero is? Um, I'll give you four hints. I'll give you four hints, okay? Hint number one, he has to be human, right? Because it's, it's gotta be Eve's offspring, so you might call him a son of man. Gotta be human. Hint number two, he has to be able to overcome temptation. So we've read one story about two people, we're 0 for 2 so far. Right, it doesn't get that much better with the next generation. So this, this, he has to be human. He has to be able to overcome temptation. Hint number three, he's going to crush Satan, but in the weirdest possible way. Because it's not gonna be through an obvious victory. It's gonna be through suffering and pain and death as Satan takes a bite out of him. So hint number one, he has to be human. Hint number two, he has overcome temptation. Hint number three, he's gonna overcome Satan by suffering himself. Hint number four, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. He's, I'm just gonna tell you, it turns out to be Jesus. He's, he's gonna be the snake crusher. And that's what I'm telling this whole thing is about him. This, that story in Genesis three, is about Jesus, because look what happens. Satan uses temptation to cause man to sin. Why? Because his plan is for sin to separate God from man. 
right? Man can't keep from sinning, therefore it's always gonna be in between us. But when Jesus, the son of man, the offspring of Eve, comes along and overcomes sin by leading a perfect life, that crushed Satan's plan. And, 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 and so what happens? Satan strikes him, right? He bites him in the foot, he wounds him, he kills his body, but because, I mean, why does Satan do that? Because that's who he is, right? He kills and steals and destroys, and he's, this is his existence, this is the reason he lives, but when Jesus walked out of the tomb, it's like he stepped on Satan's head on the way out, right? Because that was, that was his whole thing, was death. And Jesus overcame death. He overcame sin. He overcame death. Colossians 2.14 says, Jesus took the record of all of our sins. Right? Think of all the stuff you've ever done. Write it out on a bill. Right? He took all of that and he nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, that, man, that was a snake crusher. That was a snake crusher. And when the spirit of Jesus empowers us to overcome temptation and overcome sin, that crushes Satan. And when Jesus covers our sin with his blood and, and forgives it and carries it to the cross and, and takes it to the grave and leaves it there, when, when Jesus on the cross overcomes our sin and our failure and our death and our separation from God and reunites, with, reunites us with God, that crushes the head of our enemy. In Revelation 20, when Jesus comes back, it says that Satan will be bound with a chain and thrown in a pit for a thousand years. That, dude, that is a snake crusher right there. But the big one, in Matthew 26, Jesus talks about Satan's final destination, right? And it's a lake of fire. And that will be the final head-crushing blow that Jesus delivers to Satan. So Jesus will ultimately, completely, totally crush Satan. And that crushing began on the cross and then it ends in the future, right? So for now, like we're in the middle, right? The story is still playing out. So Satan right now is kind of like the Cowboys in the first half of their last game. It's like he's defeated. <laughs> he just doesn't know it yet, right? So someday, someday, listen, someday when Jesus comes back, he is gonna completely, ultimately, finally crush Satan. And temptation and sin will no longer be able to hurt us and will no longer separate people from God. And Jesus will restore God's perfect creation. And we will be what God wanted in the first place. We will really be together with God just like we were in the garden before the snake came along. So this story absolutely points to Jesus because at the end of the day, we're Adam and Eve, right? I mean, none of us can stand up to temptation and sin on our own, but we don't have to. Philippians 2.13 tells us that Christ is in us, giving us both the desire and the power to do what pleases him, to do what he says is right. And even when we fail, and even when we get in the way, and even when we trip up, and even when we choose our own way instead of God's way, Jesus is there to forgive us and accept us and love us in our brokenness. And the best part of all of this is that someday the snake crusher's coming back, all right? And he's gonna end this thing for real. And he's gonna throw Satan where he belongs, in a lake of fire, it says. 
that God has been preparing for him. And that lake of fire is far, far, far away from where we'll be. Because we will be back in that perfect place that God created for us to be together with him. And in that place, there is no sin and there is no temptation and there is no hate or violence or crying or pain or sadness or death. And I'm pretty sure no snakes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. It's, it's amazing the instruction that you give us about who we are and, and why we're here and how we should live and who our enemy is, the instruction that you give us thousands of years later from that story. And God, I thank you because even more importantly, this story tells us about who Jesus is. He is the snake crusher. He is the one who will be victorious over Satan and who will give us final, ultimate victory over Satan. And God, I thank you for that victory that I know is coming. And I thank you for the victory that we live in now as you empower us day by day, as you live through us day by day and we're able to overcome sin and temptation in a way that Adam and Eve couldn't, not because we're better people than they are, but because your spirit is living inside of us. And so God, I thank you for the victory that we have now. I thank you for the victory that's someday coming and I thank you for Jesus because he's the one that brings it. Thank you for sending him to save us and to defeat Satan. In his name, amen. And amen. You guys have a great week. Next week, we're going to talk about Noah. Read that story if you have a chance.